should um, say that uh, uh, this room can get warm, and I apologize, uh, the weather caught up on us. I thought it was pretty fast here. So we'll try and keep the doors open as long as we can, uh, provided that we don't get disturbed. A remarkable turnout for Plato. <laughs> so I'm going to, uh, Chris and I uh, both come from Berkeley where uh, the hour starts roughly 10 minutes after the hour, 10 minutes after the half hour. But in light of uh, this crowd and the day, I think we're gonna try and start as close to 3.30 as we possibly can. So let me welcome everybody. There are a lot of folks uh, I haven't seen here before. Um, uh, so I'm gonna assume this may be your first time here. And I wanna welcome you to the Mershon Center. I don't know if our director uh, Rick Herman will be showing up. He may be on standard Berkeley time, as we say. But uh, it's uh, due to Rick and uh, the others at the Mershon that uh, we have the opportunity to bring out uh, a host of scholars. Uh, uh, Chris is here as the final speaker of what is the citizenship series this year. I'm happy to say that we already know uh, next year uh, three of the citizenship speakers. They will be in the autumn. John Farajan, political science from Stanford and NYU Law. Uh, Michael Watts, an economic geographer from Berkeley. And Christine Korsgaard, a philosopher, an ethicist, political philosopher from Harvard. And um, stay tuned. I don't know if the dispatch will uh, decide to call them up. Um, in any case, uh, this is an academic uh, uh, setting and an academic talk. And um, basically, we follow standard philosophy department format. In standard philosophy department format, there will be a roughly one hour talk, and they often take one hour. Um, and it is designed for an academic audience. So I, I, I'm not gonna apologize, I'm just gonna tell you that's what, it, that, that's what you've invited yourself here to today. Um, We'll then take about 45 minutes worth of questions, and I think I will call upon people and try and balance the uh, questions between, as it were, those who are here out of interest in Plato and those who are here because they know Chris or want to hear and engage in a particular debate with Chris over a topic. So, uh, without further ado, our speaker today. Uh, generally, we keep our talks, I mean, our intros very short, uh, and I'm going to do the same here with one proviso. Our speaker today is uh, Christopher Bonich. Um, try and keep talking as long as the chairs are coming out. Just say more and more nice things. More and more nice things. Um, I, will, I, I will tell you that when Chris remembered that he was coming to kind of Columbus and where I was, knowing me for many years now, he decided to change the talk that he was going to give. He knows that I very seldom act out of knowledge and I'm far more likely to act irrationally. So the uh, talk you're about to hear is Images of Irrationality. Uh, Chris Bobonich from Stanford. Okay, thank you, Alan, and thank you for having me here today. Um, let me just make uh, one or two preliminary remarks. First, 
Uh, this is a different talk than the one I'd originally intended to give. I think it fit in better with Alan's seminar, which he's doing this quarter. Um, it's still in some way connected to knowledge and still in some way connected uh, to action. Uh, but the main worry of the talk is going to be issues about non-rational motivations and what these are like. I, the second thing that you should immediately realize I, is that I am nowhere near as interesting um, as you may have gathered from reading the newspaper article, which I've been told about but I've not read myself, nor is ancient philosophy anywhere near as interesting um, as the article may have suggested. Um, so if at some point in the talk and you find yourself wondering, my God, why did I do this? Uh, feel free to leave. I, won't, I don't mind. Uh, I won't feel offended. Um, if you all leave before the talk's over, I'll just continue it since I mean, the questions yeah, still remain, uh, even if none of the audience does. Um, third thing, um, the dialogue I'm going to talk about on some today is the Timaeus. I'm in the Timaeus. Uh, we see some of Plato's most exuberant and odd uh, metaphysical claims, uh, claims about the nature of the soul. Indeed, they're so outré I mean, that it may make the real philosophers among you wonder why you hire ancient philosophers, and it may make the real classicists among you wonder why you bother reading ancient philosophers. Nevertheless, and once you take away some of the um, outre trappings on these issues and about uh, non-rational motivations and the role of picture thinking, of imagery in our thought, I think are philosophically very interesting. So, I begin. And Plato's views about psychology in the later dialogues, and such as the laws, and just as in the middle period ones, such as the Republic, are tightly connected with other important aspects of his philosophy. An individual's character, virtuous or otherwise, is essentially constituted by the content, structure, and ways of regulating his knowledge, beliefs, emotions, desires, and so on. Plato's understanding of these items will thus shape many of his views on education, ethics, and political community. But Plato's understanding of these items also will constrain and be constrained by his epistemology and metaphysics. And the main issue that I discuss here today is how Plato conceives of non-rational motivations, such as appetitive desires and some kinds of desire for sensory pleasure, anger, fear, and so on and how he understands the relations among them and the person's reason. Um, in previous work, I've argued that Plato's psychology and the Republic, and uh, sorry, that Plato's psychology and the laws and other late dialogues differs significantly from the Republic's. Here I want to consider some of the worries that have been raised about this account. I begin by noting, without arguing for them here, my earlier claims that are most relevant to the topic of non-rational motivations. Famously, and the Republic divides the soul into three parts. The reasoning part, the spirited part, and the appetitive part. I, I argue that in the Republic, I, the three parts of the soul 
are the ultimate subjects of psychic items such as beliefs, desires, emotions, and so on. Second, and that all the parts have contentful beliefs and desires, and this content is at least partly conceptual. Three, that the lower parts do not have the conceptual resources made available by grasping forms or recollecting concepts that are drawn from forms. Further, and finally, the lower parts may well not be permanent parts of the soul and are in some quite strong way other than and alien to the reasoning part. I also argue that in the laws, on the other hand, in contrast, I mean, there are no longer multiple parts of the soul that are the ultimate subjects of psychic items, such as beliefs, desires, emotions, and so on. Two, and that non-rational motivations still essentially involve beliefs or concepts. Three, and that at least some aspects of non-rational motivations use resources shared with reason. And four, and at least some non-rational motivations are not wholly distinct from reason. And there are many other options than the account that I've argued for. What I want to talk about here today, and is one particular other option that Alan has been considering with his students in his seminar, and that's been uh, endorsed by Charles Kahn and Hendrik Lawrence. And on their view, and the three parts of the soul are and the ultimate subjects of psychic items such as beliefs, desires, and emotions from the Republic onwards. So they agree about that. We agree about that. Second, they think and that the contents of the reasoning part and of the non-rational parts are radically different in kind. Rational beliefs and rational desires have conceptual or language-like constituents. But none of the items in the lower two parts of the soul have conceptual content, or at least none of the items in the appetitive part do. The content of non-rational desires and emotions is provided solely by the non-conceptual resources of perception, paradigmatically by picture-like imagery. So the desires of the lower parts or at any rate of the appetitive part, are not merely brutish in the way that the conceptualized thoughts of a gluttonous human are, but rather literally, literally have only the sort of epistemic resources and available to non-human animals. Determining Plato's views on these matters is, I hope, of intrinsic interest, and questions about the role of mental imagery in thought have a fascinating history and are resurfacing uh, in recent years in contemporary work in psychology. So I'd particularly like to uh, learn from those of you working in those fields or those of you who work on the British empiricists and for whom images uh, were important. But in addition to these reasons, um, getting clear on these issues is central to understanding Plato's ethics. And since they're central to understanding Plato's conception of the soul and thus of how human beings can be moved to act and perfect it. Now, um, can I copy the handout?
Thank you. So I'll see what is. I'll see what I actually gave you here. Um, to begin, I mean, in the late dialogues, Plato has an explicitly linguistic conception of thought and belief. Quote: Thought and speech are the same, except that what we call thought is speech that occurs without the voice inside the soul in conversation with itself, unquote. Plato goes on to point out that speech, whether or not silent, and contains affirmation and denial, and characterizes belief as silent speech that involves affirmation or denial. Plato also freely gives accounts of even quite simple non-rational motivations that are conceptualized. And for example, early in the laws, he characterizes confidence as belief that pleasures in the offing, fear as the belief and that pain is in the offing. And this is what we would expect and if these emotions have propositional or conceptual content. I, those who think they only have imagistic content will need to explain these sorts of passages away. Non-rational motivations I have two important features. First, I, in the laws, I, both rational and non-rational motivations draw or pull the person to act. I, so, for example, sometimes an appetitive desire moves the person to act. I, for example, want a martini, and the picture of martinis is in the refrigerator in the next room. My desire for a drink by itself does not explain my walking to the next room, picking up a glass along the way, and opening the refrigerator. What I also need to explain is how this appetitive desire for the martini interacts with the appropriate information. I know martinis are in the refrigerator, that drinking my martini is nicer if I put it into a glass, and so on, and to produce the relevant actions. The desire has to interact with information in some appropriate way to produce the action. Second, sometimes the appetitive desire does not move me to act, and because reason overrides it or intervenes in some other way. In at least some cases, Reason or reasoning in some way or other and reduces the appetitive desire's strength to zero or perhaps just eradicates the desire. Suppose, for instance, as I'm moving to get the picture of martinis, and a bystander informs me that the picture has been poisoned. At least in some cases, I, the strength of my appetitive desire to drink what is in the picture will be substantially reduced to say the least. We need an explanation of this sort of psychic change. Now, in both these kinds of cases, I mean, the, relevant the relevant information interacts in some way or another with the appetitive desire. The question is, how does it do this? And these cases set an essential task for the competing conceptual and imagistic accounts an acceptable theory of non-rational motivations should be able to explain what's going on in them. So, how do these accounts compare in explanatory value? I, let's consider some of the general imitations of images. I, first, 
images are ambiguous or indeterminate. Consider, for example, appetitively desiring a soy burger. I, on the imagistic view, and the content of this desire is provided by a picture-like image of a soy burger. But images have very many representational features. I, in the given picture, um, the soy burger is, say, round, it's sitting on a plate, it's very thick, and has tomato on top of it. And that's what gives content to the desire. But is this a desire for a round soy burger or for one of any shape? I mean, do I want it on a plate or will one not on a plate do? Thick or not? And so on. Just the picture of the soy burger by itself leaves the content of the desire quite indeterminate since it doesn't single out the features relevant to desire and its conceptualization and predication that allow us to pick out particular features in a way that picturing doesn't. And it's precisely conceptualization and predicative structure that the imagery theorist denies to desires. Second, there are severe limitations on what such pictorial imagery can represent. I suppose I want a martini made with Tanqueray gin. I'm picturing I'm some clear, color, clear liquid in a martini glass won't do. And since that doesn't capture the idea that the liquid stuff is, in fact, Tanqueray gin. Perhaps the idea that the imagery theorists have and is that this content could be specified and by picture imagery and, say, supplemented by memories of certain smells and tastes and the tastes associated with gin. I, let's grant and that this is enough and to give us the idea of a single thing that has all these characteristics and without involving any conceptualization or predicative structure. Okay, maybe in that case imagery theories work. I don't think so, but I'll grant that. But what about give the content of my desire for a Tanqueray martini when I've never tasted one? And I've been told that their flavor is excellent. Uh, I've been told that all the finest people and sophisticated people drink them. And this leads me to desire to drink them. It leads me to perform various actions. But I now can't have a picture um, of the Tanqueray uh, that's singles it out in terms of its taste or in terms of its smell. The more general problem is that there are all sorts of features of objects that are not straightforwardly sensory, much less pictorial. And it's very hard to see how picture imagery could represent them. Consider, for example, the trite characterization of the primitive and undiscriminating erotic desires of the adolescent male. He wants to have sex with someone human and not his parent or sibling. Admittedly, a rather primitive, simple, repetitive desire. But what captures the, the notion of negation involved here? Someone not his parent or sibling. And what picture represents ne negation? And what picture could give the content of an erotic desire for someone who's amusing and for your neighbor's spouse? Pictures don't seem to be able to convey that sort of content. There are two further points to notice here. 
First, we cannot avoid these problems by attributing these desires to reason or the reasoning part. They can be present in a person who rejects such objects as not best, and putting these desires into the reasoning part only introduces a cratic conflict within the reasoning part. Second, the problems only become much worse if we consider some central non-rational emotions. Anger, for example, involves the thought that I've been injured or insulted by you and can include the thought that you've done so unjustly. I mean, what picture captures this? I can't think of any that do that. I mean, there are other worries about imagery theories uh, that are well known, uh, but I won't talk about them right now. Um, in evaluating these two theories, I mean, we must remember I mean, that the conceptual theorist need not deny I mean, the psychological reality of mental images. You can grant that mental images occur, and she can well grant that they play important roles in perception and memory. What she does deny is that they are the sole source of content for all non-rational motivations. It is also important to realize that the sort of imagist interpretation that we're considering is committed to a strong dualism about the content of rational motivations and non-rational motivations. Rational motivations, including rational desires, as well as any item having predicative structure, have content that's expressed in thoughts or components of thoughts and that are themselves instances of inner speech. The content of non-rational motivations, and on this account that I don't like, uh, the content of non-rational motivations consists of picture-like imagery and that's radically different in kind. I thus, consider, for example, the judgment of a two- or three-year-old. The ball is red, and which is expressed in language, uh, has conceptual and propositional content. And on Lorenz's theory and on Kahn's theory, um, this judgment, and that the ball is red, uh, because it has conceptual and propositional content, it's going to be vastly more cognitively sophisticated than any possible non-rational motivation in any adult human being. A problem for the theory, I think. As we'll also see, a severe problem for such theories is explaining the possibility of appropriate interaction between these two very different kinds of content. This theory is not faced by classic empiricist theories of content, since typically in these theories, all content, including that of thoughts, not just non-rational motivations, is cashed out in terms of images. I now want to move on to talk about the dialogue, the late dialogue, and that imagery theorists like best. And this is a dialogue called the Timaeus, and it's here that Plato makes some claims and that seem truly bizarre and odd. And, but I don't think that the bizarreness or oddity of them and is essential and to the basic content of his view. And so the imagery theorists, um, 
I have um, two main motivations for their interpretation. First, they hold that the lower parts of the soul and the repetitive part, the spirited part, have only the cognitive resources of perception, including, for example, memories consisting of stored perception, and that the Theotetus excludes any sort of, another late dialogue, excludes any sort of conceptualization or predicative structure from perception. So non-rational motivations in lower parts of the soul can't have propositional or conceptual content. Secondly, I, as we'll see, the Timaeus explicitly denies belief to the appetitive part of the soul and invokes instead picture-like imagery. So these are the two main motivations for thinking that in late dialogues like the Timaeus and Plato thinks and that non-rational motivations and have only imagistic content. So I, let's look I'm at um, some passages I'm from the Timaeus and that the imagery theorists cite. And for example, passage two uh, on the handout. The part of the soul that has appetites for food and drink and whatever else it feels a need for, given the body's nature, the gods settled in the area between the midriff and the boundary towards the navel. They knew that this part of the soul would not grasp speech, and that even if it did have some share in the perception of speech, it would have no natural instinct to pay heed to any speech, but would be witched, but would be bewitched for the most part both day and night by images and phantasms. Hence, the god conspired with this very tendency by constructing a liver situated in the dwelling place of this part of the soul. And he made it into something dense, smooth, bright, and sweet, though also having a bitter quality, so that the power of thoughts, which proceed from reason, moving in the liver as in the mirror, which receives impressions and produces visible images, should frighten this part of the soul. And so how do we interact with the appetitive part of the soul? And via frightening images painted on the liver. Page, passage three, and goes further than passage two, and explicitly denies belief into the appetitive part of the soul. Passage three. And the appetitive part of the soul is totally devoid of belief and calculation and reason, but it does share in perception pleasant and painful together with desires. For it's always wholly passive. Its formation has not by nature permitted it, revolving in itself, around itself, repelling motion from without, and using its own native motion to discern and reflect on itself. Two very strange, striking passages. Now, on the simple literal reading of these passages in which the imagery theorists adopt, Plato accepts that the soul is composed of three distinct subjects. Although in the Republic, each part had an array of psychic items, including beliefs, here the appetitive part, at least, is much more restricted. It has no beliefs, but only perceptions, which allegedly have only imagistic content. 
I'm the most important interaction with the reasoning part is by images that the reasoning part intentionally projects onto it. But should we take these passages literally? I, this is an especially pressing question since, as we'll see, there's another more sophisticated account in the Timaeus. And there are and a number of reasons, I think, not to take the account in these passages literally. First, the proposed explanation of how the reasoning part interacts with the appetitive part and is that the reasoning part projects images onto the surface of the liver that frighten or cheer the appetitive part. But taken literally, I mean, this is simply an absurd and grotesque psychological theory. It seems to require, for example, and that the appetitive part has a mode of visual perception by which it literally sees the images on the liver. And this is an inner eye theory um, with a vengeance. Uh, whatever the mistakes or infelicities of Plato's account, and we should avoid attributing to him views that are just absurd. Modest constraint, modest instance of a principle of charity. Um, we see other bits of exaggeration in the Timaeus. Uh, the Timaeus and presents both the penis and the womb as ensouled creatures um, that are subjects of sexual desire and portrays the womb as capable of anger. It's hard to believe he really thought this. Other, instead of meaning this is something like a metaphor. Now, there are some very puzzling features I, of the appetitive parts I, of the soul, of the mortal parts of the soul in the Timaeus. To begin, remember passage three claims that the appetitive part is wholly passive. This is very problematic in two ways. First, it entails that the appetitive part is not a self-mover. And on Plato's views in the late dialogues, being a self-mover is an essential characteristic of souls. Can't be a soul without that. This would seem to make the appetitive part not a psychic entity at all. The soul's status as a self-mover might well be consistent with the idea that some psychic items are caused and in that way are moved by other psychic items. For example, a belief might cause a belief or a desire. But the appetitive part, like the other parts of the soul, is, on the imagistic interpretation, meant to be a genuine subject of psychic states and not merely a featureless container of psychic states. Plato never spells out exactly what this comes to, but in a number of places in the late dialogues, he stresses that the soul as subject is active with respect, to its infect, with respect to its affections. It examines, characterizes, and compares them. It asks questions about them, comes to judgments about them, and so on. Plato shows no sign of wanting to reduce all this activity into the interaction of psychic items all by themselves. But whether we see this activity as activity of the soul itself or its parts or as an attribute of some psychic state themselves, this kind of activity and is precisely what's denied to the appetitive part. 
as we're told in passage three, it cannot discern and reflect on itself. Why posit a separate subject as the holder of such psychic states, even if the purported subject can never discern its own states? When we turn to Timaeus's account of perception, and we'll see that what goes on in a typical, a typical case, say, of seeing a red apple can be distinguished into, into two elements or aspects, both a representation that is in itself unconceptualized and some active conceptualization of it. And when we talk about perception of the Timaeus, I'll suggest that we can make a similar move with regard to non-rational motivations. So, um, let me note a couple problems before turning to the issue, before turning to perception. Um, I, other reasons not to take I, passages two and three fully literally. Note also I, that the cases mentioned earlier that any account of non-rational motivations need to explain remain quite puzzling on the literal Timaeus view. And we've seen that it's part of the literal Timaeus story that the reasoning part sends images to the appetitive part to frighten or soothe it, that is, especially to dissuade the appetitive part from acting on its bad desire. And so presumably, when the appetitive part's desire does move the person to act, the desire for a martini with its imagistic content interacts with current sensory information to produce the relevant action. But as we saw earlier, I mean, there are important problems for imagistic theories here, I mean, because first, images are indeterminately ambiguous in what they represent, and their capacity to represent anything other than simple non-conceptual content is quite limited. But also consider the case in which the appetitive part's desire is for something that the reasoning part rejects. And suppose that the appetitive part has a desire for candy and that the reasoning part rejects. I have no candy in my room, but I realize that you might and that I can email you to ask you to bring some over. I've never done this before to get candy, and so there's no train of memories in my soul of typing followed by eating candy. The reasoning part, since it disapproves of this desire, and has no reason to provide the relevant imagery, um, the information in a relevant imagistic form, that's pictures of keyboard letters, pictures of fingers coming down on and so on, and that's needed for the appetitive part to produce the relevant bad action. The imagistic account thus fails and to provide a good explanation of the ways in which non-rational motivations do, as a matter of fact, operate. I note two final points before turning to the other account in the Timaeus. First, it's an essential part of Lawrence's account and that an appetitive part with pictorial content can, by itself, move the person to act. Appetitive desires can do them all by themselves. 
Yet, we're often aware of desires for something and that's disapproved of by reason. For example, Jane is aware of desiring to sprinkle spoons of sugar on her cereal and ecratically acts on the desire. For Jane, and this desire is recognized and interacted with, at least in part, by virtue of the relevant propositional content. For example, quote, I want to sprinkle lots of sugar on my cereal, unquote. And that's how she recognizes the desires, how it connects up with other thoughts for her. And on the imagistic story, however, the desire that actually moves Jane to action is the appetitive desire that has only the relevant pictorial content. So if there is some desire, i.e. some psychic particular, that actually has the relevant propositional content, this desire is causally inert with regard to action. It's more in the spirit of the imagistic account to hold that there's only one desire present and that this desire has only imagistic content. What has propositional content on the suggestion would be reason's awareness of the unconceptual desire. And reason's awareness need not, and indeed in this case should not, be a causal element in getting Jane to act on her repetitive desire. But this is not an attractive option. It leaves it far too open that the reasoning part's interpretation of the appetitive desire might actually come apart from the aim end at, from the end aimed at by the appetitive desire. Jane's reason, for example, and rejects what she takes and to be a desire to sprinkle sugar on her cereal. But the appetitive desire's imagistic content of a white granular substance could produce the action of sprinkling salt on her cereal. The imagistic account leaves too much room to open up between reason's interpretation of the imagistic desire and the desire's imagistic content and its causal powers. On the imagistic account, our behavior should be much more surprising to us than it actually is. Now, I think we can shed some light on uh, how Plato understands non-rational motivations in the later dialogues by considering what he has to say about perception in these dialogues, particularly about perception in the Timaeus. I consider a theory of perception and perceptual content that posits two basic subjects. I one to have unconceptualized representations and another to be aware of and to conceptualize these representations. Why posit two subjects? Taking a clue from the Republic's principle of contraries, we might think that two subjects are needed when the items in each cannot coexist in the same thing. But positing two subjects as described above for perception seems decidedly unnecessary. The same subject can, it seems quite obviously, have both conceptualization and representation. Indeed, such doubling of subjects seems not only unmotivated and extravagant, but it's simply counterproductive. The conceptualizing subject, after all, 
needs to be aware of these representations in order to conceptualize them. Positing a distinct proper subject for these representations only needlessly introduces problems about access. We find a philosophically much better story and about perception in the Timaeus. And given the close link between perceptions and non-rational motivations, and we might hope that this better story about perception can help us find a satisfactory account of non-rational motivations. And so let's begin with perception. Um, this is the passage um, separated by some white space uh, from passage three. Um, I won't read all of that. Um, let me just sum up what seems to be going on here. Um, Plato thinks that the immortal part of the human soul is comprised of the circle of the same and the circle of the different in a certain mathematical structure. These circles move with actual spatial motion. On the cognitive side, and the immortal part contains the soul's innate resources, including the concepts of being, sameness, and difference, and at least the concept of being is necessary for any belief. According to the Timaeus, perceptions are motions, first, that are motions in the body that originate from the body's contact with external objects and reach to and affect the immortal part of the soul. These, emotion, these motions are unconceptualized until they reach the immortal part of the soul that then characterizes them. It's the property of motion that provides the basis for the interaction of the psychic and the material. Both the soul and material things are capable of being in spatial motion and of bringing about and being affected by spatial motion. Interaction is possible and because what is psychic and what is material share a common property, that is, motion. And it's the interaction of these motions that at least partially constitutes the conceptualization of perception by the resources of the immortal part. The upshot of such interaction is that the soul characterizes something as the same or different, and this characterization is straightforwardly conceptual and propositional. That is, the soul says that this is the same as something or different than something. And what it says is propositional because it's either true or false. This is silent speech or thought, and that culminates in belief and as doxa as the sophist characterized them earlier on. And Plato also identifies items such as deliberation, belief, pleasure and pain, boldness and fear, and hatred and love with psychic motions. And the passage um, at below three um, describes ordinary perceptual encounters that occur shortly after the entry of the immortal part into the body. 
the immortal part provides the conceptualization of perception, and that happens in very young children. And there's no invocation in this discussion of perception. There's no invocation of and no need for and the mortal parts of the soul as separate subjects that are aware of and house the perception. Perception and perceptual belief are not described as involving separate distinct subjects being added onto the immortal part, nor as the immortal part of the soul giving rise, for example, by fission, into separate distinct subjects. At least with respect to perception, all that's going on is motion reaching the soul and then being characterized in virtue of affecting the emotion of affecting the motions of the immortal part. The connection between the immortal part and the perception is direct. What remains throughout the interaction are the circles of the same and the different and their basic structure. The elements of this story are the original circles of the same and different, the motions that strike these circles, and the resultant motions of the circles, which are, so to speak, the composition of these two distinct motions. And also note and that from very early on, conceptualized perception is a basic input of ordinary action. And there's no hint that we need a subject that houses unconceptualized images that interact via association and to produce action. Now, given the close links between perception and non-rational motivations, I think we should expect a similar story about the latter. Part of the content of these motivations might often be perceptual or derived from perception and sometimes imagistic. But as they are part of our ordinary experience and enter into our action, they will also be conceptualized. Remember that the imagist theories we're considering hold that all non-rational motivations have only imagistic content. The conceptualist interpretation that I advocate only requires that some human non-rational motivations have conceptual content. This is entirely consistent with the idea that non-human, non-language users don't possess concepts, or that non-language using human babies' psychic states have only imagistic content. All that's necessary to reject these imagistic theories is that there are at least some human non-rational motivations that have conceptual content. The evidence and arguments that we have considered and will consider, however, warrant stronger conclusions. In a later passage in the Timaeus, and there's a suggestion as to how non-rational motivations may involve the resources of the immortal part of the soul and have conceptual content. Here again, it involves motion being transmitted through the body to the immortal part of the soul. Motion is transmitted through the body until it reaches uh, that which is intelligent, and that is the immortal part of the soul. And if as plausible, we follow the parallel with the case of perception, there'll be interaction between the immortal part and the incoming motion and the resultant composite motion should partially constitute awareness. 
awareness of the motion reaching the immortal part is thus a necessary constituent of anything that counts as pleasure, including appetitive pleasures. So pleasure as such only has psychic effects and when the immortal part of the soul has the necessary awareness of the relevant motions. Accordingly, no pleasures are fully characterizable simply as movements belonging to the mortal part of the soul. They count as pleasures and enter into their typical psychic interactions, for example, giving rise to certain desires, only with this contribution of the immortal part. Thus, a paradigmatic item in the lower part relevant to non-rational motivations only is what it is and has the psychic effects that it does, at least partially in virtue of the deployment of the imminent resources of the immortal parts. Does such awareness include conceptualization? And since awareness is an operation of the immortal part of the soul, there is nothing to prevent simultaneous conceptualization. And the parallel with the passages about perception <coughs> and suggest that conceptualization is typically a part of the interaction between the immortal part and the motions coming through the body. And if we look at some of the other late dialogues, such as the Philebus, and I think we have textual evidence for thinking, and that some non-rational pleasures and have intentional and conceptual content, and it's very clear I'm that hopes um, and have um, conceptual content. So, <clears throat> I, we should see whatever imagistic representation is involved in non-rational motivation as an aspect of a broader state that includes conceptualization and whose effects depend at least in part on its conceptualization. And to sum up, as we saw in the analysis of the Timaeus passage that's right after passage three, irrational perceptual beliefs are the result of the composite motions of the immortal part of the soul and motions coming through the body and from such beliefs, certain actions arise. In the case of pleasure, the analogous story is quite straightforward. Insofar as some non-rational pleasures involve perceptions that include the awareness of the immortal part, they're like the perceptual beliefs discussed earlier. They are a result of the interaction of motion coming through the body and the, immortals, and the immortal part's activity including conceptualization. And this account can and should be extended to include other non-rational motivations, such as fear, anger, hope, desire, and so on. In conclusion, an ethical psychology should provide, at least in very broad outlines, some view of how people think, feel, are moved to act and are moved to act, how they can be ethically educated, and offer some understanding of their perfected ethical condition. In all these ways, the imagistic theory attributes to Plato a worse theory than he actually has. First, the canonical interaction for the imagery theorist is the projection of images by the reasoning part on the liver. 
This is not something of which one is typically aware, at least I'm not typically aware of that. And it reduces the central interaction of reason and appetitive desire to unconscious levels. This worry doesn't depend on a general skepticism about unconscious psychic activities, but it is a high cost and to make unconscious the large majority of reason's dissuasive effects on appetitive desires. Worse, it makes the relation between the input of reason and the effect on the appetitive desire disturbingly contingent. Any aversive image should do, and even worse, what may really do the work are pain and the prospect of pain. The relation between reasoning and non-rational motivations thus becomes oddly manipulative. Indeed, it's difficult to make sense of the distinction between the manipulative and the non-manipulative if we were restricted to the causal interaction of associationistically connected images. Second, as we've seen, because this theory identifies the non-rational motivation with its imagistic representation, it makes our non-rational motivations, as we're normally aware of them, causally inefficacious, because we're normally aware of them as in virtue of their propositional conceptual content. Third, restricting the content of non-rational motivations to picture-like imagery has a surprising and but logically straightforward consequence. If, for example, in a desire or an emotion has conceptual content, and it cannot be a non-rational motivation and must instead be a rational motivation. Desires that actually have the conceptualized content, I want a Tanqueray martini, or I want to sleep with my neighbor's spouse, either simply can't exist or have to count as rational motivations. Neither consequence seems acceptable and the latter option threatens to reintroduce ocratic conflict among rational motivations. Fourth, as we have also seen, what we wanted was some account of, for example, appetitive desires or appetitive desires that would do the following work. First, it should explain how the representations involved in non-rational motivations can fix upon a certain object for example, a round soy burger. Here the imagery theory faces, and without attempting to address, the problem of the ambiguity of images. Two, um, a good account should explain how the representations involved in non-rational motivations can represent something and that's not an object of sensory awareness. For example, a martini made of Tanqueray gin but we found no such resources in the imagery theory. It's simply a fact about human psychology and that non-rational motivations in adult human language users can take as their objects very complicated and sophisticated objects. For example, one's neighbor's spouse. The imagery theories we've considered don't attempt to meet this challenge. Third, um, a good account should explain how appetitive desires interact with each other and relevant pieces of information such that we can explain our ordinary experience of having appetitive desires, having them be affected by other appetitive desires, 
having them change in light of information, and having them move us to action. We found that the imagery theory had no account of how images and linguistic information could interact, since there seems to be no common denominator allowing such interaction. And we also found that trains of association associationalistically connected images seemed much too impoverished to guide even primitive appetitive desires. In sum, we've seen no reason to think that such a model could be anything other than woefully inadequate for describing human psychology. It is in no way an adequate substitute for the conceptual and linguistic characterization of non-rational motivations that we saw Plato actually give. In conclusion, I'd like to return to the ethical implications of such imagistic theories for understanding how we train our non-rational motivations and for ethical education in general and for the importance and value of having, at last, at the end of education, well-ordered non-rational motivations. First, since pictures cannot by themselves plausibly represent non-sensible value properties, they cannot be ways of grasping even partially and infirmly truths about value. And this is an especially implausible result uh, for spirited emotions. Having one's non-rational motivations in good condition thus seems only to have an instrumental value insofar as this avoids psychic turmoil or interference with rational belief and desire of the sort that we find in acrosia. The idea that the only states of soul that have non-instrumental value are rational motivations gives us a Plato who's all too stoic. Second, the imagistic account also fails to provide a plausible account of the role of non-rational motivations in ethical learning. Once again, they seem only capable of instrumental value or disvalue. But in the laws, Plato is concerned to stress the importance of some sensory pleasures. Plato conceives of value properties in quasi-mathematical terms, for example, of certain kinds of symmetry or orderliness. And he also emphasizes the importance of children engaging in and taking pleasure in the right sorts of movements, for example, the right sorts of dances, from very early ages. These pleasures will be identified, at least in part, by the children having them in linguistic terms, in particular in terms that make some reference to harmony or to order. Desires for pleasure thus have more than pictorial content, and thus cannot be assigned to the appetitive part of the soul on the imagistic theory. But such pleasures and desires for them need not, and typically in youths will not, be the product of an all-things-considered judgment of what is best overall, and can come into conflict with such judgments. Thus, we can't put them into a distinct and separate reasoning part. Nevertheless, and they provide the building blocks and for later and more sophisticated conceptions of order. I thank you for your patience.
for questions. And as I said earlier today, I'll try and moderate, as it were, since though I'm in no better position than Chris in, 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 the, in, in, in regard to many of you, um, I'll try and balance those who are, as it were, from the OSU community, if I can determine who they are, and, and those who aren't. And also see if I didn't convince you of nothing else in this talk. I think I must have convinced you I'm that ancient, both I and ancient philosophy are considerably less interesting than the article in the newspaper made us seem. So you've not seen the article. How could you say? Any questions? Yeah, I, I think um, the, way to the way to understand those sorts of remarks is that what he wants to distinguish are something like two aspects, a unitary psychological state. And there's going to be some aspect that's lacking in belief uh, that's a purely representational. I say in an ordinary perception. There may well be something, visual perception, may well be something picture-like. Um, but part of that perception will be some sort of conceptual labeling or some sort of proposition associated with the image. And in the Timaeus, I don't think and he's trying to do, and he's not trying to give a fully precise and worked out account of psychology, but he's trying to gesture um, and towards something I, that can be explained by some of the other things we find I, in the late dialogues. I, part of... Uh, Part of what I think is happening in the late dialogues is that Plato is breaking down the barriers between reason and non-rational motivations that were so strong and strict in the Republic. In the Republic, reason had concepts that it could deploy that were drawn from forms. These were, in other words, innate ideas. I mean, the lower parts of the soul couldn't do that, I mean, but they had beliefs. And where do they get their beliefs from? Well, it looks like a typical empiricist sort of story. I mean, from sensation, I mean, from perception. I mean, perception itself I mean, is going to involve some sort of conceptualization, I mean, some sort of propositional content. I mean, he comes at some point in the late dialogues in a dialogue called the Theotetus, I to separate very sharply for the first time I conceptual content I'm from representational content, non-conceptual, non-propositional, representational content, and identify or at least call perception just the representational part of that. And so if the lower parts of the soul had only that kind of thing, I, they'd have only representations and only representational content, nothing conceptual or nothing propositional. Um, but what we get then, I think, is a very unsatisfactory and very puzzling, uh, very odd theory. I think we get a better theory 
um, and if what we see is I think players breaking down the barriers between I mean, what comes from reason, what comes from innate resources, and what comes via perception. Indeed, in the later dialogues, he seems to think that any sort of predication at all involves some sort of grasp of a notion of being or is, and this is going to be innate. Can't get notion of is or predication I'm from uh, perception. I hope that at least gestures at some of some of the worries that you might have had. I'm in, I'm in the Republic, for instance, I'm Plato thinks that perception all by itself can make judgments I'm such, such as this is red or this is blue or I'm even this is a finger. I just take what we get by a perception, build it up via some operations, and what we get I'm are judgments, many kinds of judgments. And at least this is red, this is blue, this is sweet, even this is a finger. Um, what innate ideas are needed for I mean, is the very sophisticated sort of stuff and that goes on in the rational part of the soul. I mean, what he comes later to think um, I mean, is that I mean, he considers more deeply I mean, just what's involved in assertion or belief and sees that it involves asserting that this is something or other. I, and this concept of being something or other, he thinks, just couldn't be derived I, from deliverances of the senses or built up from deliverances I, of the senses. And so even the very most primitive judgments, and such as this is red, are going to involve innate ideas. The earlier theory, innate ideas were only needed or invoked and to explain more sophisticated kinds of thoughts. And so one important shift here and is that he thinks innate ideas and reason's contribution and is deeply embedded in all sorts of uh, ordinary psychological activity. So in that passage uh, where he's talking about deliverance, mm -hmm. uh, he talks about the way in which the appendage part is, be is often, or for the most part, bewitched by mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you say. I'm in, in the Timaeus, uh, what's striking is, I mean, we get two different accounts of the origin. I know um, part of the Timaeus is the cosmology, and part of the cosmology is the creation of soul. Um, and we're told I mean, the Demiurge himself I mean, creates the immortal part of the soul. This is story one. And he creates the immortal part of the soul and then assigns to the lesser gods I mean, all the work from there. He subcontracts. And what they do is they build on to this I mean, two uh, mortal kinds of soul, the appetitive part and the spirited part. And it's in this story I, that we get um, I, the passages that I mentioned. The second, we get a second account, though, of irrationality in, in the Timaeus. And in this, I, the Demiurge still creates the immortal part of the soul. I, but what explains irrationality I, is just the embodiment I, of the immortal part of the soul I, into the body and its distortion. Um, because it's embodied, in particular by emotions coming through the body. I think part of what we're meant to see I mean, is that the latter kind of story, I mean, the better story I mean, than the previous one. And one way of cashing that out, um, I, we talked at the metaphysical level of I mean, the immortal part of the soul as motions and having some sort of composite motion and with emotions coming through the body. And at the epistemological level, I think what this suggests is that the most basic judgments are going to involve innate resources and resources that just can't come through perception. Any sort of uh, manipulation of perceptions, judgments of similarity between perceptions, difference between perceptions are going to involve um, innate ideas that we bring to perception and rather than things that we get from perception. And, he's, and being saying this in difference I mentioned, um, he, in the later dialogues in particular, and he stresses the importance of these forms. And it's, um, although he still believes, I think, in the form of the good, the form of the beautiful, and so on, I, these are not the ones that he stresses I, in the early, I, in the later dialogues. Uh, what we, what's the ones he concentrates on are things um, I, that are topic neutral and in some way or another, and that seem to be needed for the most fundamental and basic kinds of thought. And you mark out a subject of thought by seeing that it's the same as itself, uh, that it's different I mean, from other things, I mean, that it is something or other, and so on. And so this is part of, I think, a broader, more general shift in what occupies Plato's intention when it comes to think I mean, in the later dialogues. Particularly important in this is I mean, two different functions I mean, for innate ideas. I mean, innate ideas in the late, late dialogues are needed to do the sort of thing I talked about. Um, I, in the Phaedo, there's a famous argument in the Phaedo I mean, for recollection. Um, and the argument runs, look, you see equal sticks and stones. Um, I, these um, and sometimes seem equal, sometimes don't. 
What about the form of I equal? That's never seemed uh, unequal in any way at all. Um, but I, from thinking about the sensibles, I mean, we come to think, we recollect the form. And an essential part of that is seeing that sensible equals are different from the form of equal, or sensible equal properties are different from the non-sensible property of equal. And that's a very sophisticated thought. I mean, it's at least going to be something vastly more sophisticated. It's going to be some sort of scientific or philosophical um, recognition I, that's different from I, just being able to speak, uh, speak with comprehension of language. Does this question? I think he gives up. Yeah. I think he gives up, gives up partitioning the later dialogues. Um, there's just a unitary soul. Bruce. Bruce. I love all of that. Uh, <laughs> um, I, in I, the next revision of the paper, that will get in. Um, I, I, I appreciate the suggestion. That's Bruce Hyde, not the footnote you made. <laughs> um, and it's very striking. For instance, in, in describing how he, uh, how um, God creates the immortal part of the soul um, and composes that out of being, sameness, and difference. Um, what he literally says is, I, God takes part of the form of being, part of the form of difference, part of the um, form of sameness, bends them together, uh, and twists them in a certain way. Uh, very <laughs> graphic sort of image, and it 
and since forms are your nonsensible properties, and construing that literally would be insane. Um, but we can see that as a way of talking about innate concepts. Wasn't Archytas some kind of engineer? Wasn't Archytas some kind of engineer? Um, I'm sorry, a little too in-house. Well, I, I mean, but Timaeus is clearly a natural scientist. Yeah. Oh, right. Aristimachus had written a dialogue about everything. Might have come out that way. Um, I, I think I just simply not thought enough about the kind of discourse that Timaeus, the speaker in the Timaeus, engages in. And everything you said, I like very, very much. And it would be it would be very pertinent to Plato's Panthology because, after all, the whole point of the cave is that people are seriously fixated on images. Mm -hmm. They think that they know things from seeing them, whether mm -hmm. they do or not. So to take any of these ideas seriously, they are going. They are almost certainly going to be ideas about what they think. I like all that. I think, for example, we get a different um, explanation of weakness of will or acrasia than we did earlier. Um, I, <coughs> I, in, in the Republic, I, the conflicting desires were, part, were in different parts of the soul, and the different parts of the soul were in conflict. And this was based on a principle of contraries. I, as we talked about a bit directly before this, I, there's never been any statement of principle of contraries uh, that manages to show how it produces the three parts that Plato wants and only the three parts that Plato wants. I, in the laws, we get, I think, a different account I, of weakness of will. In, and what does, this, does the work there I, is that I, desires, in addition to having con conceptual content, I, have causal strength. And sometimes the strength of a desire can be out of proportion and to the value of the objects that it's for. And so I can have a very strong desire for something that I don't think is so great. Um, and if that one wins out, I, I act ecratically. Um, 
not, not uncontaminated reason. Okay. Um, I think back to the image of the uh, I, parts of the soul. Uh, I'm sorry, the circles of the soul, and they're affected by motions uh, coming from outside. Uh, the non-rational motivations are not simply instances of reason, and they're going to be something like deformed applications of reason, incomplete applications of reason, something like that, I think. And that's the story I want to tell. Please. I read in the encyclopedia that originally Plato was the number one philosopher for the Christian world. But as time went on, Aristotle became the number one mm -hmm. philosopher for the Christian mm -hmm. world. Um, this runs a little bit out of my time period, but in, um, and there may be someone here actually knows a lot about this. Um, but in general, um, I, many Christians, Muslims, and Jews I, liked Plato a lot better than they liked Aristotle. I, Plato, for instance, I, seems to think that individual <laughs> souls are immortal and retain something of personality after death. I, Aristotle, clearly not the case. Nothing survives death. Or if anything survives death, I, it's only some aspect of reason that's identical for every, everyone. Um, Plato's God is providential. I'm the Demiurge. Um, is interested uh, in the welfare of human beings, loves human beings. Aristotle's God I, has no idea I, that human beings exist, or at least has no idea that particular human beings exist. In Metaphysics Lambda, and we get Aristotle's account of God. Quick argument. I, what's God? God's the best entity. And what is the best entity doing? The best activity. What is the best activity? Thought. What's the best kind of thought? Well, thought that has the best object. What's the best object? See above, we got the answer to that. God, so what's God thinking about? God's thinking about himself. There's no awareness. I mean, it's fascinating that people laugh at that, I mean, what, which shows how deeply, I mean, even for non-believers, um, the Judeo-Christian Islamic story has seized our imaginations and given us preconceptions. Uh, that, that just sounds absurd to us. It just sounds laughable. Um, but it certainly wasn't laughable to Aristotle. And there's a very good Greek motivation for um, thinking that this is happening. After all, um, why would God mess around um, with something other than perfect entities? Um, that's a very natural thought to in a Greek philosopher. Um, but not Christians, Muslims, and Jews. So for many ways, uh, I, I, medieval, um, I, at least some medieval Christians, Muslims, and Jews liked Plato better, and particularly Arabic commentators. And Aquinas, of course, was the main, uh, con, the main source of I'm making Aristotle the philosopher of the church. But again, this, this now gets into a story that I'm not the best place to tell. Well, even um, Plato, after all, in the Republic, thinks that you know, something weird about a perfect being doing anything that will implicate his perfection. And yet turns around in the Timaeus and makes it pretty providential. Yes, God is changeless. 
uh, but if God is changeless, um, I, how does he come to, um, I think of doing this now, that later? Um, Maimonides, um, the Jewish philosopher, I addressed a similar sort of problem. And God is perfect. And if something perfect changes, what could it change to? And only something worse. And so God's changeless. But what do we find in the Old Testament? What do we find in the teachings? And we find that God gets angry at the Israelites sometimes. What is getting angry? Well, it's a change. It's a change from one attitude to a different kind of attitude. And what does Maimonides say about this? Again, there may be much better Maimonides scholars in the audience. What he says is, well, most people can't think very clearly. Uh, they can't think like philosophers. And so they're not going to understand this bit about changelessness. So we just tell them God gets angry. Uh, that's good enough for them. That's what we tell them. Truth is, God's changeless. Um, I'm certainly, I'm, I'm, what we once talked about in terms of uh, in parts of the soul, I, we, talk, we can talk about now in terms of in relations among psychic items um, and psychic items that are in some way, um, I think, more sensitively described and whose complexity is better recognized in the later period than in the earlier period. But also what is left um, is, I think very interestingly, I mean, this notion of the soul as a self-mover. I mean, this comes I mean, from the Phaedrus on. I mean, the soul is a self-mover. It's active uh, with regard I mean, to its own affections. And the notion of the soul as an innate active principle uh, goes on to have a long history uh, in the, the rest of the Western philosophy, I and mean, picked up immediately by the Neoplatonists, I mean, but also picked up by, later by I mean, other uh, modern philosophers. So you believe uh, quite a bit actually survives. So you, just, you just have to recast the language. So it's not a matter of each part feeling more proper to itself. But that, but also... I, that and also um, non-rational motivations can have more value. Non-rational motivations can have more value. And you remember the passage in the Republic and where he thinks about moderation and courage. And he says, aren't these virtues pretty much like virtues of the body? And they're not high-class virtues. I mean, they're not like wisdom. And they're pretty much like virtues of the body. Um, I, in the later dialogues, uh, we get a lot more emphasis on sensory pleasures and the way in which sensory pleasures and can be a way of getting the right values and getting the proper values. Um, and there's an almost obsessive insistence, I'm, for instance, I'm in the laws, um, that children uh, dance uh, in certain ways to set up certain motions in their souls. Indeed, he requires um, pregnant women um, and to walk. And they're, actually, they're, they're told that um, the gods require them and to walk and to a certain temple. I 
childbirth uh, every day to um, have a good luck with their children. Well, what's important is instead, what's really important about this is you set up the right motions in the fetus and as it's carried along and the proper motions are set up uh, in the fetus and in the fetus's soul. Um, and there's a much greater emphasis, I think, on the way in which sensory perceptions of order uh, can be valuable in themselves as partial or incomplete grasps of value uh, and as building blocks into more explicit grasp of value. Sure. It's available on Amazon.com. Finally. And the the uh, well turned out academic like Alan, as he told me, has one for his home, one for his office. Um, it's in both paperback, hardback, and it makes a lovely wedding gift. <laughs> did, uh, <laughs> did you did you have something else you wanted to ask about your book, or was that? Yeah, and, and these are good questions. I, I, how much knowledge is needed to have genuine knowledge to be a philosopher? Uh, in the Phaedo, he seems to say that we know what the equal is. And so he seems to think that he and his philosophical associates and at least know one form, know what one form is. Um, um, I'm tempted to think, and just as a historical question, I, he doesn't think Socrates uh, fits the bill. Uh, some, evidence, I mean, some evidence that people have cited for this, uh, and he's in the symposium, you remember the ascent of love, and you start off loving one particular beautiful person, and the next step in ethical progress uh, is to stop concentrating on this one beautiful body. I love I'm all um, beautiful bodies equally, and you can think of this as the Bill Clinton step, I know the ascent of love. Um, and then you go further up, further up, and then Diotima gets to right before the forms, and he says, she says, well, up to here, Socrates, you could follow me. Uh, hereafter, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, maybe not. Uh, and I think that's an indication, and that's an, a place where Plato separates himself uh, from Socrates. And it is very striking, as you rightly point out, and how intensely and unrelievedly negative I mean, Plato is about ordinary, decent people in dialogues such as the Phaedo. Um, when they die, uh, wouldn't not all non-philosophers I mean, go to Hades and Kesatai and Borbro? 
That sounds nasty. Just it sounds nasty. And it is. It's lie in the mire. And he then tells the story of reincarnation. I mean, the most just and holiest of non-philosophers, how do they come back? Uh, he says, well, they come back. Uh, they have the happiest reincarnation of all non-philosophers. And they come back as tame, uh, as gentle and political creatures. And they come back as bees or wasps or ants. I, I find it impossible to read that except as scathing contempt. I genuinely scathing contempt for the lives most of us live. And sometimes I say this, and uh, Stephen Men objects that you know, bees are sort of cute, and they buzz around, they have nice lives. Uh, I, I, find it hard to, I find it hard to see Plato thinking that. Uh, and in the Republic, everybody <coughs> philosophers, but philosophers are in the cave. I, I think it's part of the shift in the later dialogues is why he's a bit more optimistic and about non-philosophers is because he sees reason as more deeply permeating uh, all our motivations, all our thought, and so that the progress isn't discrete in the way it was earlier, but is more continuous. Yeah, uh, Plato, um, and I, I think uh, and part of this is Plato's view about forms, like in the middle period dialogues. Um, and he thinks not just that uh, it's good to know forms, which he does. Um, and he thinks that forms are just good full stop, non-relationally. And if you're asked what entity is it good to be, I mean, it would be good to be a form. I mean, these are the best entities I mean, that they are in the realm of beings. These are the best beings they are. Um, I mean, we, uh, we improve ourselves I mean, to the extent that we can assimilate I mean, ourselves to them, make, us, make ourselves like them. I mean, it's in, and certainly in, in, the, in the Republic, for instance, and he is extremely... I mean, emotive and emotional language I mean, for the interaction uh, between the philosopher and forms uh, and uses you know, overtly sexual <clears throat> language um, to describe the philosopher's communion with forms, some sort of mystical, some sort of union with forms, something like that. So, kind of, I think, a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes back to, I think, Lisa's and David's worries about mm-hmm kind of part of what's going on with Timaeus. Um, so at one point, as the benefit of the paper, um, you, you, you're, you're trying to talk about roughly how these motions get translated uh, through the body up to the soul. Mm-hmm. 
And you, you used um, a distinction, and I'm not quite sure I know what you're appealing to within the Timaeus. Maybe it's something you're appealing to in general between awareness and conceptualization. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to figure out what the awareness might be other than the conceptualization. You seem to want to keep the distinction, but I'm not sure kind of all the work that it's doing for you. I, I, I don't want to keep that distinction. I, it's, it's better for me not to keep that distinction. The rational soul is aware of it and aware of it in conceptualized form. Okay, I, there's, I, clearly there's awareness um, I, of these motions. Um, what I was there um, considering was someone who would say, okay, um, the rational soul is aware of them, but that doesn't mean it conceptualizes them. I, that's a view I, I want to press against. So um, all awareness or all activity that, or all motions, if you will, that get to the rational soul are, as it were, transmuted into conceptualization from your thinking. Um, I think that's a plausible thing to think. Yeah, I do too. So um, you said at one point, I think just a moment ago, I'm not quite sure um, 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 how you view the Stoics, and I don't want to mm -hmm. worry about what a Stoic picture be, but um, you generally like, as it were, the non-rational motivations. You think that the Plato likes them more the older he gets. The older he gets, exactly. Um, I like non-rational motivations more the older too. I get. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out, could they be anything other than, as it were, instrumentally good, given this picture of self-motion and psychic perfection? Yeah, I should... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, to the extent that they embody some sort of grasp of value, um, and you think of it in the, just in the motion terms. Um, I, the concept, I, the I, conceptualized motion I, is going to be some sort of composite of the motion making it through the body and the motion of the um, circles of the soul. And so part of that very thing I, it has as a part or constituent or aspect um, something of the immortal part of the soul. Right, but my point was simply that if we go back to kind of the image, surely the end is the, as it were, incomposite motion. They could only contribute, the reason, you know, the valuable is they mm -hmm. contribute to yeah. the eventual incomposite perfect motions of the, you know, immortal part. That's what I was worried about. No, I I agree with that. I'm, but I'm, even the, imp the even the imperfect forms, I can be in some way a genuine grasp of value. And contrast this, for instance, say the sight lovers in the Republic. Right. I'm there. They're asking, "What's the beautiful?" And the lovers of the sights and sounds say, "Well, nice color," um, or something like that. And Socrates says, well, "That's neither here nor there. Color." Um, it doesn't make anything good. doesn't make anything beautiful or fine. I mean, these sensible properties are just wholly distinct I mean, from genuine value properties. It's a hot day. Chris has been flying for too many hours. And boy, are my arms tired. And uh, unless there are other questions, I suggest we thank him and uh, go from there. <laughs>